Psychology in Seattle. Hey, deserving listeners. I have Rebecca Bloom on the podcast today, and I know a lot of you love her. And so I thought we would answer some Rebecca-oriented questions, and we would also talk about Star Trek. What do you say, Rebecca? Uh, May the force be with you. (laughs) Oh, no. Cross dreams. It's going to be the whole episode. I think it's going to be one big Star Trek reference. <laughs> well, that's a Star Wars reference. You should have said live okay, long and prosper. Let's start our, uh, <laughs> I was trying so hard. <laughs> yeah. This is the Psychology in Seattle <laughs> podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a therapist, a professor, and a lifelong Star Wars and Star Trek nerd. In fact, my fantasy football team is called Captain Kirk's Trekkies. That's hysterical. Who are you, uh, Rebecca? Uh, I'm Rebecca Bloom. I'm a licensed mental health counselor and a board-certified art therapist. I'm also trained in level two of sensory motor psychotherapy. And uh, I have a private practice in uh, South Seattle. I also podcast and I have books and I make art. And I currently am learning what it's like to help a puppy grow up. So this first question, I actually pulled this from a subreddit called just R Therapy. And I thought it was interesting. So, And I thought I'd ask you about it. It says, um, my therapist started falling asleep on me during the end of my last two sessions with her. She has been my peer specialist for about six months now and has never slept on me. She distracts me a lot. She keeps her phone on the desk at all times. And every time her phone vibrates and rings and flashes because someone is calling her. Between her and her phone, I'm distracted a lot. And when she falls asleep, I start to feel like I'm not, I'm not, I I start to feel, I start to feeling like I'm just really boring her. I haven't said anything because I am not really confrontational. Uh, What do you think about that, Rebecca? So if I am correct, the term peer specialist, it's not a trained therapist. Is that? Yeah, I don't know what that is. Uh, That Yeah, that could just be someone who is just trained to listen or something. Yeah. So the way I've heard that term is a peer therapist is or a peer counselor is someone who's done well in their own mental health journey and has been trained uh, to be in kind of an advocate role, not in a traditional therapy role. But obviously, I think you should say something. I mean, if my therapist fell asleep on me, I would feel really disheartened. I know just the other day, I think I was getting a little bit sick, and my throat made this weird noise. (laughs) And my client just looked at me like, are you going to die on me? So I can only imagine if I fell asleep. I mean, that's, you know, that's not therapy at that point. I don't even know what that is. So I have a lot of things to say about this. One is, as a therapist, when I was full-time, and you're full-time now too, right? Yes. You know, there's, you get old, and, but even when I was younger, this would happen. When you're at, when you're at a regular office job, and you, you'll have ups and downs in terms of energy uh, throughout the day. You know, you get to work, you're, maybe, you're, maybe you're not a morning person, you're a little groggy in the morning, it takes you after lunch until you really kind of get energetic. Or maybe you're a mid-morning or a mid-afternoon kind of nap person. And in the morning you're good, at the afternoon you're not so good. Well, at a regular office job, you can 
kind of pull back in terms of your intensity or energy or maybe even just walk around the block to, or, you know, get a cup of coffee, uh, browse the internet, kind of do, do something that uh, occupies your time while you're having that low energy point. As a therapist, when you're working full time and you're seeing eight clients a day and, and you have a lunch break, there's, you have to be on for all those eight hours. You, you have to be completely present and uh, there and you can't really pull back. Uh, you, um, you could, but it's not generally, you know, smiled upon and might, and it might be noticed. So there's that. And then if you're tired, it's the same sort of thing. Uh, it, it's, it's so hard to uh, function as a therapist when you're tired and sleepy. Whereas at other jobs, like I said, you could, there's, there's flexibility. Like you're at a meeting and you can, you can just sort of step out or you're doing some paperwork or something. You're just like, Oh man, I I need a nap. Like as a professor, I would do this uh, all the time. Not when I was teaching, but when I was doing administrative stuff, uh, I'd be in meetings or I'd be doing paperwork and at my office and I would just lock my door, turn off the lights, get on the ground and I'd I'd take a nap for 10 minutes or maybe even longer. Sometimes I took like 45 minute naps just on the carpet. (laughs) And uh, uh, as a therapist, I can't do that. I can't say to my client, I'm going to take a nap for the next, you know, half an hour uh, in the middle of the office. And, and so, uh, so I understand that. And I used to have all these pretty elaborate systems. Like uh, I had to figure out, when I would use caffeine because if I drank, if I just drank coffee casually, I would sort of get so tolerant of it that it wouldn't really work anymore. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't drink caffeine anymore, but, uh, and, and I don't really need it because my practice is so small that this isn't really an issue anymore. But back in the day when it was, I would say, okay, well, my first two or three sessions, I'm probably okay. But once the fourth session kicks in, I'm probably going to start getting sleepy and I'll start yawning a lot. And uh, clients sometimes get sensitive to that, even though I'm, I'm actually interested and I'm present. When you yawn like 15 times in you know, 10 minutes, it just makes a client potentially feel like you're bored, which I wasn't. So I would say, okay, when I start to feel that sleepiness come on, I have to like really kind of sh- shoot some caffeine into my veins and, and pick myself up again. So, so I get all that. I mean, has that ever happened to you? Oh yeah. I have a stash of chocolate and my five o'clock and six o'clock client. I always eat a little bit of chocolate before each of those sessions. And that helps. Yeah. Cause I know I'm going to get tired and I need a little bit of extra. But also there's a long, there's a lot of documentation of countertransference showing up and you getting tired because you're getting triggered and you're getting shut down because of that. I'm curious if on this Reddit thread, the client is the therapist is tired because something's happening in the session. Like the, you know, it's one way of shutting down is to sleep, right? It's a way to, to not be engaged. Um, so I'm curious if the client is bringing up something too close for the therapist. Or sometimes when you're with a really depressed client or with a client who um, I heard a lot of this from folks that worked on Alzheimer's units, that they would just get 
if you know when your client's super depressed and they're presenting super low energy you can start to feel really down and low too or when you're working with someone who has dementia or alzheimer's and they're so spacey you can get really spacey too so there's a bunch of different lenses yeah those are the two situations that i thought of as well that one when therapists get tired is either just because they're tired or uh, if it's a counter-transference issue, then it's them shutting down because there's there's something that the therapist is trying to defend themselves from or the client is depressed or has some other uh, personality trait or some sort of projective identification situation that induces the therapist to feel tired or distant or something. Um, and in my, you know, over the years, I've experienced that, which is interesting because you'll, uh, and maybe you experienced this too, Rebecca, where I'll go into a session with energy without any tiredness. And by like minute four, I, I'm, I'm already feeling really tired. And I notice that regardless of when I see that client during the day or during the week, I will always feel tired with them. And, uh, and I typically will conclude that it has something to do with their productive identification, meaning that they, through their early childhood experiences, uh, internalized a kind of relationship style where the other person isn't really present. Mm-hmm. And the, uh, so that's, that's sort of a, a, a warring, a battling internalization that they have where there's a part of them that's distancing and, and um, not paying attention. And so they project that onto their therapist as a way of kind of processing that past relationship and they, but they need to induce the therapist to actually feel that way. And of course it's unconscious. No client goes to therapy thinking they want to cause their client to be tired and sleepy. Yeah. Or, um, Right. Or I would just give it back to the therapist that the therapist has something to work on. And sometimes, you know, the, the, the client is in a reporting mode versus a working mode. And it is boring for the therapist. Like the client doesn't want to do any work. And the therapist is stuck in the situation where, you know, you're just in a experience of being an active listener and you're not getting to use all your great tricks and you're a little bummed. Yeah. And I, but I might also characterize those moments as a situation in which the client is kind of pushing away the therapist to uh, protect themselves, you know. And and young kids will do this too. Sometimes you'll have a fifth grader who will come in and just report, report, and not really engage with you. And and when you try to get a word in, the fifth grader and or the adult or whatever will not really regard what you're saying or, or kind of indicate that, yeah, 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 whatever. So let me get back to my story. Blah, right, blah, blah. Right. And, and for fifth graders, they're insecure to the point where they, they don't really trust that if you have a back and forth, that the focus will stay on them, which is what they want because they're at that stage. And, and so, yeah, it, I get it. But at the same time, have you ever fallen asleep in session? No. Yeah, I'd like a full on just out. This 
peer specialist or there, I mean, they're calling this person a therapist. I mean, that's another concern is like this person on Reddit doesn't understand the difference between, I mean, what it looks like is that this person thinks that their peer specialist is a licensed therapist right? Which or is, calls them a therapist. Which would be important to check out. Um, right. Because also, like, how many therapists do you know that have their phone buzzing on the table, too? Well, not many, but I've seen it before. Uh, I tell this story all the time. Early in my career, I was doing co-therapy with a family and I had a, was working with another therapist. I didn't know her that well. And in the middle of session, her phone rings. And as soon as her phone started ringing, I was mortified for the, me and the family and her. And I, I thought, oh, my God, she left her phone on? I mean, what a dunce. And then she grabs the phone. I think she's going to just, you know, turn it off. And she answers it. You know, in the middle of a family therapy session, okay. there's, there's, you know, there's like seven family members and she answers the phone and says something like, oh, hey, uh, oh, so yeah, how you doing? Yeah, let me call you back. Wait, what? Oh, oh, well, don't worry about it. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll call you back. And I, I mean, I was, now the family's probably like, well, you know, sometimes you get a phone call and you just answer it. But for my anal uh, frame keeping uh, self as professional self, I was, I'll never forget it. And uh, so I wouldn't be surprised if some, and you, you know, I hear so many stories from people who email in and, but even just my colleagues who go to therapy, they'll tell me like I, one of my colleagues goes to a therapist who it's in her home, you know, she goes to her home and it's in the basement and she, her therapist is almost always late, even though, oh my gosh. <laughs> she, even though she can hear the therapist walking around upstairs. Uh, and, and one, and like one time it was like 20 minutes into the session and she's just sitting there and the therapist comes downstairs randomly and goes, Oh, that's right. There's an appointment right now. And, and, you know, my colleague is like, yeah, well, you know, I just really like this therapist yeah. a lot. And I'm just like, but what, you know, again, for me, uh, I've been late to a client session probably like 10 times. Uh, even when I was doing in-home therapy and I would have to drive to Vashon Island to Kent to Everett, to Tacoma, I always made sure I was there extremely early mm -hmm. because I just consider the frame of therapy to be so important, even if 90 plus percent of my clients wouldn't really mind if I was a couple of minutes late. Now, I have the privilege now that I work at home and have been for many years that it's extremely easy for me to be here. <laughs> But anyway, I, I just find that there's this, um, uh, for you and me, we're like, well, of course, I'm not going to answer my phone. Of, of course, I'm not going to fall asleep. But I don't know. I, I hear a lot of stories. Yeah, well, um, and it is a fear of mine. Like, actually, I'm, I'm thinking about taking a heritage trip to Poland next year. And I'm trying to figure out how long do I need to be back to be over my jet lag so that I wouldn't fall asleep in a session. So I'm like thinking about this way in advance because I know how bad jet lag 
hits me. And I'm always surprised. Like the trainer I love working with, Janina Fisher, she's always flying all over the world. And she's never tired. It just blows my mind. So, um, you know, I think it really shows how engaged and connected someone is. If you know that they're, you know, just flew in from God knows where yesterday and they're able to be awake. So the idea that like someone's in their normal life and they're falling asleep, there's something is clearly going on. Yeah. Recently, one of my students said that another professor at my university whom I know totally fell asleep in the middle of teaching a class. Really? Yeah. Like there was a discussion going on and he just fell asleep start okay. snoring oh, God. and no one knew what no one knew what to do right mm-hmm. uh, i would have punched him oh, no all, not, the students just like looked at each other and just continued to discuss and uh and eventually he just woke up randomly and tried to play it off like he i don't think he from the way they were describing it it was like he didn't know he had fallen asleep mm. and i just can't imagine that happening. I mean, when I'm teaching, it's, there's so much focus on me and there's so many things I'm thinking about. Uh, I just can't imagine just like nodding off. <laughs> I mean, if Pumping I was, a, if I was a student for sure. Uh, but as a teacher, it's just, it's just so interesting to me. It'd be like performing on stage as a musician and then somehow just like falling asleep in the middle. Um, anyway, um, so before we get to Star Trek, I, I have actually a question from someone that uh, they wanted to ask you about. So this email is from patron Katie from Detroit. She says, what do you and Rebecca Bloom think about Facebook's new remembering feature for people who have died? I just, mm. I just went to a loved one's Facebook page, and although he died a year ago, I was really surprised to see that his page was changed to remembering it made me super sad. What are your thoughts, yeah. Rebecca? Um, well, I've actually thought about it for myself and have put things in place, I think, so that that would be available. Um, I'm, I, you know, I mean, we're all trying to figure out social media for the first time. But what do you, what do you a, mean? You actually have to sign up, pre-sign up on Facebook for a remembering situation? I think so. I think you uh, designate someone else as your administrator for after you pass um, and they maintain your page as far as I know. Interesting. Um, So it doesn't just, Facebook doesn't just know that you died as far as I know, although that could have changed. (laughs) Maybe they know now. Um, I, I mean, I, so I guess I would do it. That's what I'm saying. I, and I, do you know someone I care about died? We weren't that close anymore, but I um, I do rely on his spouse to kind of give updates about their family and people are constantly connecting. And so I think about someone that doesn't have someone that active in their lives. How would you remember them in the way that we do everything now, which is if you're in my generation on Facebook. I'm curious if Snapchat has a remembering section for the younger generation. Um, would you do it? Yeah. I mean, so I think it's personal, obviously, and <clears throat> it's complicated. But overall, I love this kind of stuff. <laughs> we, not because I love Facebook per se, but because we need more ways to express our grief. Mm-hmm. When people die 
I mean, even if you're the spouse or the sibling, you go to the funeral in terms of United, you know, American culture, you go to the funeral and then that's pretty much it. Mm -hmm. We need, you know, grieving takes a lifetime. And if there's another way for people to do that, then I, then I'm all for it. It, If you don't want to do it, then I guess you can block that person or unfriend that person or something, you know, it's, it's not that big of a deal, but you know, her, I don't, she didn't write that much, but she says it made me super sad. And the, the thing I'll say to that is I'm glad you're sad. If you, yeah, that's okay. Yeah. If you weren't sad, then there'd be something wrong with you. Uh, it's a sad thing that your loved one died. And it, if, if being reminded of that is, is really tough for you. So there's, there's two ways of looking at it. One is, is like, look, I was just trying to go through my day and I didn't, and I was just flipping through Facebook, just wanting to be mildly entertained. And then boom, I'm reminded of my loved one's death and I was crying and I wanted to go home. And in that kind of situation, then, okay, maybe there's some kind of setting you can say of like, uh, I don't want to be, I don't, uh, I only want to be able to get, you can mute certain people. So you can on Facebook, right? So you can say, I don't want to see this unless I choose to see it. But if you're just flipping around at home and you have time to cry and be sad and you're reminded of him through this remembering, uh, you know, thing, then I'm like, great. You know, that's that's a wonderful thing. You deserve to feel the regular human emotions associated with losing someone that you remember. Yeah. And I had someone I didn't know that they died, but I just went to Facebook, stalked them. And what came up was a memorial page. Um, and they died in 2007, is that right? So they've been dead almost 12 years now. And I remember I was really glad that that page was there and I could read through all everyone else's remembrances of this person. Um, and I think I, I still go back from time to time and check in on that page because it's my only, you know, in this culture where you're so dispersed and you may not know anyone else's friends you know you may have a singular relationship with that person it's really hard to mourn someone um, because we can't do it in community which is how we've been mourning for every time up until the last 20 years when we're all splintered right so this is another way for us to not be splintered and I have a friend who died as a soldier in Afghanistan, uh, let's see, eight or nine years ago. And a lot of people post his page and when his birthday comes up, there's a lot of posting, a lot of activity. and, And I participate in that too. And without Facebook, there, I'm just thinking, I'm just realizing this right now. If there wasn't for Facebook, there would be no discussion in my life about this friend of mine's passing. Uh, Mm -hmm. I mean, maybe if I met up with his sister, whom I see occasionally, it might come up a conversation, but it might not. You know, we might just be, you know, just talking about other regular things. Um, And so Facebook is the only place where, for this person who passed away that I'm able to 
um, participate in a communal grieving process with someone. Um, so yeah, now I'm not saying that Facebook is supposed to be the only venue or if that, you know, or you're forced to do that. What I'm saying is like, we all need to be grieving a lot more. We all need to be communally grieving a lot more. And however you get there, then great. I mean, ideally you'll be in the same room looking over pictures and crying and reminiscing uh, or going to the grave site and, you know, talking to that person. Uh, but it, if you aren't doing that, uh, because typically Americans don't, then I'm all for, I'm all for Facebook. Uh, and, mm-hmm. and I, I think, I think it's a wonderful thing. And I, I think that the re, if there is a negative reaction against it, I think it's just fueled by the American negative reaction to anything involving sadness or grief. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, recently we tried to find my wife's fourth great grandmother's tombstone. We knew the cemetery, but we weren't able to find it, but we did stumble upon a gigantic memorial on the gravesite of Raymond Carver, the great American short story writer. And it was so nice. Like, like I was like, oh, you know, and it was covered with stones and remembrances, and it had a bench there. And I thought, this is so nice. Here's someone I never thought about mourning, and I can sit here and think about him. Um, so yeah, we really don't have a lot of places in our lives set up for grieving. Where was her fourth grandmother's grave supposed to be? Uh, it's in the graveyard in Port Angeles. Her fourth great grandmother actually founded Port Angeles, Laura Hall. Um, and so we thought as the founder, you know, there might be something large and we did find other tombstones from that time and potentially hers just got uh, weathered away and it's there somewhere. Um, but it was a fun adventure. <laughs> and it's a beautiful cemetery looking over the Strait of Juan de Fuca. I mean, it was a lovely afternoon doing a ridiculous project. So um, yeah, for another time we'll find the exact... The the person that runs the cemetery wasn't there. I think if they were there they could have just pointed on a map but we tried to do it ourselves. Yeah, I love that kind of stuff. I uh, took my parents to Kansas. I, I have a lot of... Uh, there, for a good portion of time, uh, half of my ancestors lived in Kansas, in Salina, Kansas, for, I don't know, 100 years or something. And so a lot of the grave sites are there. And the and since I've been doing all this genealogy and stuff, uh, there are all these um, houses that went to, in fact, the house that my mom was born in, uh, but then quickly moved up to Spokane, Washington when she was two. And she hadn't been back there and the hospital she was born at and all this kind of stuff. And I loved looking at the old grave sites with my, you know, second or third great grandparents, but my fourth great grandparent, that, that'd be amazing. I'd have to go out to like Illinois or something to, to find those things. But so does this mean your wife is like a long-term Washingtonite? Yeah. Uh, her people got here in 1864. Wow. Which is like with the Denny's. Yeah. That's interesting. Um, all right. So, Let's talk about uh, Star Trek. So Star Trek Discovery, for those who don't know, there have been a number of different Star Trek TV shows and movies over the years. 
there was the original series in the 60s, but then you had Next Generation, and then you had Deep Space Nine, and then you had um, the one I never really watched. Uh, <laughs> Which had the first female captain. Yeah, the Voyager. And then they did a, a prequel with uh, uh, with uh, the guy from Quantum Leap. So he was he played the 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 captain before Captain Kirk, and that was called I can't remember the name of that one. Um, and then everything kind of petered out after that. Uh, there was the ratings weren't very good, it, you know. Uh, those kinds of TV shows kind of fell out of favor. But then more recently, a couple of years ago, they started up this brand new kind of very modern series called Discovery and it. And it takes place. It's also a prequel. It's before it's before Captain Kirk. Uh, right. or, you meet and you, you meet Spock's parents and young Spock is there. Right. So it's like just before Captain Kirk becomes Captain Kirk. And it's the show is very modern. It's got all the fancy special effects and it's higher. It's high paced. It's more violent. It's more, it's darker. Uh, There's more. But still hopeful. Still hopeful, but uh, it, it's dark, man. Like uh, the some, some of that, like that one guy who gets. Uh, I mean, I don't want to spoil it for people, but there's this main guy character who has a, a very dark story that he uh, that he has, um, and painful. And like some of the graphics that they show of you know the guy remembering the traumas that he's been through are are very well done. Cause it's just like, cause I was watching it with my wife and she doesn't like kind of images like that. And she was just like, Oh God, you know? <laughs> and, uh, and the other thing is that it's a, a, a more diverse, you know, Star Trek has always tried to be diverse and it was certainly very diverse compared to other shows. Uh, in the sixties, you had the very first on uh, TV uh, interracial kiss between Captain Kirk and Uhura. And there's actually a whole story. Do you know the whole story about that? No. So back then in the 60s, they didn't have interracial kissing on on any sort of venue. And, uh, you know, Gene Roddenberry is always trying to uh, push the envelope and didn't like all the racism and stuff. And I mean, he was a problematic person also. He was a narcissistic asshole from what I understand, but, but he was always trying to push the envelope on that. And so there was this scene where they uh, they were going to have Uhura and Captain Kirk kiss and the, uh, uh, but the script was that in order to make it somehow palatable to, you know, the censors or to American audiences, it was, the aliens were controlling Captain Kirk and Uhura to kiss. So oh. they weren't, they weren't wanting to kiss. They were being forced to kiss. Mm-hmm. And then the other part of the story, and this is from memory, I could have it wrong. And the Trekkies out there might uh, hate me for, you know, sort of spouting ridiculousness, but uh, the original uh, uh, script was going to be that, um, or how did it go? God, you know, I'm going to mess it up, but it's something like, uh, as they were shooting this scene, 
they, the director or the people were saying, okay, don't actually really kiss. Like stop just before you're kissing because we can't actually have the two of you kissing. But then I think Captain Kirk and Uhura were like, no, no, no. Uh, they went for it. They went for <laughs> it. And then they asked them, okay, you guys actually kissed that time. I need you to do another take. And they like refused to do it or something. There's some kind of story Sweet. around that where they, uh-huh. they sort of, ma- they gave the producers no choice because there was no other take or something like that. I could uh-huh. screwing that up. But anyway, so the new Discovery show, uh, and of course, you know, again, going back to the 60s, you had Sulu played by the great George Takai, whom I'm actually reading his graphic novel right now. Did, did you know? Oh, he has a gra- no. George Takai has this graphic novel. Is it based on the play? Um, I don't know, but he, uh, the graphic novel is about his childhood in prison camps in you know the United States during they always call them internment camps which is really stupid but uh in World War II you know his family and him were locked up because he was he was Japanese American uh, do you know that they have a play as well on that he has a play yeah oh okay so yeah maybe it's somehow based on that um and it's great it's a it's a great graph I'm not super into graphic novels but this this one's very riveting it 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 moves real fast and it's obviously very personal to me because i had uh, my family members were also locked up during world war ii um so anyway but yeah george takai who uh you had the japanese american guy you had a a white guy playing a rush yeah you had a, an american guy with a bad russian accent you had an american guy with a bad scottish accent <laughs> um but anyway so the new discovery that just came out uh, is even more diverse. Uh, it's not uh, maybe as diverse as other kinds of things, but it's pretty diverse. The main character is an African-American woman. Anyway, so the new show is uh, pretty interesting. And I, Rebecca, I know you wanted to talk about it. So uh, what do you want to talk about? Well, first off, it's got a gay relationship on it, which is fascinating. So Anthony Rapp, who originated one of the roles in Rent, uh, plays Paul Stamets, who is kind of the engineer, but their propulsion system is using um, bioenergy. And then his husband, uh, Dr. Hugh Colbert, is Wilson Cruz, who played the first, who was the first openly gay actor uh, to play a gay character in My So-Called Life. So watching them be a couple is so fantastic but also there's other aspects like um my probably my favorite part of the show is um when oh my god i'm spacing out her name um tignataro comes on as a tough as nails engineer um and she and anthony rap don't get along and also her name on the show is Jet Reno. And so my fantasy is that she's the unknown love child of Janet Jet, Joan Jet and Janet Reno. Um, but they, they don't agree. They don't talk about being gay. They are talking about complex uh, scientific principles. And I realized in watching them do that, this might be the first time ever that I've watched two out gay actors talk about science and it was just like a revelation for me. Like it, it just reminded me that representation is so important and you don't know that you have never seen it until you see it. And then it's like, Oh wow. 
gay people being smart, talking about what they're smart about. Um, it's fantastic. So I'm, I'm loving it. Although I was reading all, I was trying to find stuff to get ready for this podcast. And man, the super Trekkies are down on the show. There's a lot of really negative nitpicking out there. And it took me a while to find like anything positive. Um, but as a Trekkie, I, I'm not a super Trekkie, but I'm into this show. Yeah. Well, as a nerd and as someone who's named Kirk, I have to be a, I have to be a super nerd about Star Trek. Um, and uh, yeah, so Tignataro is great. Uh, I actually haven't gotten to that point in the series. Oh. I'm only like a little bit into this in the season two. Uh, but yeah, I heard Tignataro was going to be on it and I just thought it was brilliant casting and I love everything Tignataro, everything she does. She, she was actually on a podcast I listened to, uh, with, um, oh, I forget his name. He's like a, he's a guitar player and it was like my favorite episode of his podcast. I think she's hilarious. Everything she does is hilarious and her TV show on Amazon it was a miracle. Uh, One Mississippi, I think it's called. Yeah. Um, is, especially the first season, is just some of the best television I've ever seen. And it's based on her life. It's like an actual, you know, um, you know, real story to a certain extent. And uh, yeah, I just think it's, she's she's charming. She's interesting. I, I just feel like I want to be her best friend. She just seems like a really cool person. I want to be her best friend. I'll have to fight <laughs> over it. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah, having an, uh, a gay couple that's, that's pretty front and center to Star Trek Discovery was uh, a breath of fresh air in that way. And, you know, some tragedy befalls that couple, which is pretty uh, hard to watch um, in, in, on the show and very heart-wrenching. And to talk about the Internet, so... I've talked about this before and it's a speculation because I haven't actually done a study, but the internet is not a representation of the population. Uh, the people like how, where were you looking at comments? Uh, I mean, I was just, you know, scooting around. I was on YouTube a little bit. I was just trying to find like any press on the show. Um, so nowhere special. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, well, what, just as an example, for example, if you go to Rotten Tomatoes and you look at the user or yeah, user score. So if you know, there's, you have a critic score and then the user score or the, you know, I don't know what you call it, user, the regular people score. And people often say audience score or something. People often say, okay, well that's the critics and that's the audience, but that isn't the audience. The, the, there are very particular sorts of people who create accounts on Rotten Tomatoes and then actually review movies on Rotten Tomatoes. That is a very uh, select group of people uh, on average. And so the internet is, is generally the same as that. You know, my mom doesn't contribute things to the internet <laughs> other than to Facebook. She should. Yeah. Uh, you know, regular sort of soccer families shall I say, 
aren't like super contributors to the internet. They're you know, when they see a TV show, they don't go, Oh, I got to talk about this on, I have to type something in or I have to create a YouTube video or, you know, those aren't the sort of people that do it. The sort of people who do it are, uh, on average, they're going to be male. They're going to be white. They're going to be younger. They're going to be, uh, there, there's a higher percentage of shut-ins. There's a higher percentage of people who are disillusioned with society and romance. And so it's a, it's a particular group of people. And so if, like, if you go on the internet and you, you just try to get a general sense of how much someone likes something, you're going to get a skewed result. Like the last Star, Trek, Star Wars movie, episode eight, the internet hated it. But if you just asked regular people, they're like, yeah, it was good. I liked it. It was fine. You know, but the internet said it was like the end of Star Wars. Like it was the dumbest, most, it was like worse than Phantom Menace, according to the internet. And, you know, a lot of the critics were like, I don't know, understand why everyone hates that. Well, not everyone doesn't hate it. It's a particular group of, I'm going to just say it. They are white, young shut-ins who are disillusioned with feminism and women and romance and they're hurt and they get upset and they, they, you know, lash out. And so I would suspect again, speculation because I've done a study that the discovery a backlash on the internet that you're, you know, seeing is, is that group of people. Right. There's a lot of talk of sticking to the, the timeline and being accurate and it's like wow <laughs> this is, let's just watch some tv everybody it's gonna be okay so the other thing that i'm really fascinated with is the michael uh burnham character who is deeply challenged like she is she is born into a human family of course with every narrative her, her parents die and then she's raised on Vulcan. Um, and so in the first season, there's this huge battle in her of how human to be. Um, she also gets charged with mutiny. So it's interesting that, like, you know, the main character immediately falls from grace in the first episode. And yet you love them anyways, which I think is really modern storytelling. Um, and I love that twist. What did you think of it? Yeah, I mean, overall, I liked the first episode, the first season, and that storyline and her character. Uh, the complaint I have about it, and maybe why I haven't uh, gone back to it uh, in a, a couple months, is the I, I feel like I have to really pay attention because there's so many things that happen so fast, <laughs> like in regular Star Trek. Uh, you know, episodic television, particularly going back to Next Generation, and uh, and to and to a lesser extent, Deep, Deep Space Nine. Voyager was much more of a show where you had to watch every episode and kind of pay attention. But going back to Deep Space Nine, and of course the '60s uh, show, is that you didn't have to be paying attention that closely. <laughs> you, you could, especially from episode. You want to be entertained. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and and with this show with Discovery, I I found myself three fourths of the way through the first season, going like, "Wait, what's happening? <laughs> who who? Oh, that's right, they have a they have, oh, that's right, they have a Klingon in the in the 
uh, in prison on the on the ship. Like, where did she come from, and what's her? Is she the good? Is she the good Klingon, or is she the bad Klingon? Like, I I just started forgetting things, you know. And um, that's not the, sh- the fault of the show. It's just because you know I was watching it with my wife uh, with a couple glasses of wine at, at night, and just you know maybe drifting in and out of sleep and, and not really paying attention or something. And, and so that's my complaint is like, I wish they would have told me, by the way, you're going to have to pay attention to this stuff or else you're, you're going to lose, you're going to lose the storyline. Right. There are twists upon twists upon twists in the first season um, that I, I really enjoy because I love that stuff. I grew up a latchkey kid watching more TV than probably anybody ever should um and i can predict a plot pretty often i have a sense of what's going to happen because there's so many tropes out there and this show i was like didn't see that one coming like (laughs) so i loved it like that got me riled up and like ready to watch more um because i'm so rarely surprised by things so i really enjoyed that part i also i was listening to a bunch of uh, interviews and the woman Sonequa Martin Green that plays uh, Michael Burham, she said that she planned on being a psychologist and ended up being an actress. And you can really see that in her. There's like um, a warmth and an investigation of like, especially in the second season of The Human Condition, that is just uh, very inspiring. And I, I really get a lot out of the depth of her character trying to figure out her own story. And she actually has a moment, this is a spoiler alert, but she meets her mother and they speak scientist to scientist. So to see two black women speaking scientist to scientist, it, it was like, God, this show is really um pulling it out in terms of who gets to have what conversation. It's not just that the actors are there playing the characters, but it's what conversations they get to have as those characters. that are really different. And I'm just, I'm living for it. Yeah. And I sort of get why some Trekkies aren't super into the show because it's really a departure from the style of the previous series in that the Deep Space Nine, Voyager, uh, Next Generation uh, were kind of sterile and slow and were wonderful. I mean, I was a massive Next Generation Deep Space Nine fan uh, at the time. But it, but when you watch those shows, it's it definitely is dated and very different from the style of TV that is made today. And so... they made a pretty big leap to modernize this show while obviously trying to keep in, in tune with, with the universe. Like there's a, I mean, as a Trekkie myself, there's a ton of fan service in discovery that they wouldn't. Oh yeah. Yeah. Like in the, in one of the episodes you're in the captain's reading room and there's a tribble on the table. Right. And And I'm like, look, Right, and uh, uh, Mud shows up, uh, who's played wonderfully by uh, Rain Wilson, and I love loved the way that they did the Klingons. Like mm-hmm. they 
the makeup and the outfits actually make them look like aliens, you know, in, because in the past it was like, well, you just slap a thing on the, some, on their forehead and, <laughs> and you, but in, in this, in discovery, I feel like they really fleshed out the Klingon culture in a very, and there's, so, and there's so much Klingon language in it too. Right. So they actually speak Klingon and they have subtitles in the past they would never do that. They would, uh, they would just say, "Yeah, we, you know, let's let's we'll just have them speak guttural English, and <sighs> you know, you'll just figure. Well, they must be speaking Klingon to each other." In this one, it's just like, "Oh yeah, the Klingons are another race, and they have a different culture and a totally different way of thinking about uh, the world or the universe or the galaxy." And so, I really like that a lot. Um, the part I, I wasn't so enthusiastic about, which was also in line with Star Trek lore, which is the alternative universe uh, storyline. And uh, so I liked it at first when they went to the other universe and they're doing stuff. Mm-hmm. But then when they brought the captain back, um, yeah. the woman from uh, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, and among a lot of other things, um, she, her character, I just thought was like, wait, so she's coming back? And, you know, I don't know how long she sticks around for, but. Oh, she's around. Okay. I mean, the whole, she's a major player in the second season, um, both for sheer terror and comedic relief. Uh, so it's an interesting way of how to bring in badness into <laughs> the universe, right? Right. How to bring in someone who is foul into this place where so many people are pure of heart. Uh, it's, I think it's an interesting plot device. Yeah. And I, I just found that maybe she doesn't pull it off quite well or the outfits were a little silly. Like in the um, alternative universe, they all had like armor on, <laughs> you know, or armor like uh, ac- accessories. They weren't actual, you know, because it's not like a phaser is, is going to be worried about a little bit of, you know, metal, but, uh, so that storyline kind of lost me. Um, but the rest of it, I, I, like I said, I really enjoyed and, and I, I find that the, um, and Oh, another thing I liked about it was the younger crew members, they go to an actual bar, like, which was so much more realistic because anyone who knows anyone in the Navy, which this is basically, you know, space Navy, knows that Navy people party hard. Like they are drinkers and sex people. (laughs) Like Navy people, hardcore. And so uh, in the past, you know, with say um, Next Generation, they had this, this bar that was called 10 Forward. And you had Whoopi Goldberg there as... I, was she the bartender? Um, yeah, she was the last of her kind, tending, somehow ending up on a Starfleet ship tending bar. Yeah, and she was very intuitive and she would listen well to people. And in that bar, people were just kind of, it was like a lounge where people sat around talking, you know, quietly while they drank their synthahol, which <laughs> uh, tasted like alcohol but didn't get you drunk. And it's just like, well, what's the point in that? <laughs> And, uh, but in this discovery, they actually have a bar on the ship where the younger uh, crew members are actually drunk and 
dancing and uh, dressing up in sexy outfits like they're going out in the town and flirting and, you know, chatting up and going going back to someone's room. You know, like there's actual realistic Navy personnel doing things that they would do. And I, I, I like that too. And there's a lot of comic relief in that as well. Like, oh, you know, I you should go talk to her. And that, that one uh, redhead woman. Uh, Tilly. Tilly, yeah. Uh, uh, her relationship with Michael is really funny. And she's like, go talk to him. And I, I just, I thought that was also well acted and well written. And I like that Tilly is clearly neural atypical and, you know, could easily fall somewhere on the Asperger's or somewhere on the spectrum. And that that's like her superpower on the show, right? She can, she's, she's not worried about the, she's kind of worried about the social stuff, but she's really trying to be a super scientist. Um, and that really plays out in the second season. And that like a female character can be a super scientist <laughs> and right. still be flirty. And you're right with the alternate universe. There's a lot of leather and fur, um, you know, I enjoyed that. <laughs> I love a good corset, you know, with some fur epaulets. You know, you have me if that's the outfit of the day. Well, her outfit is great in the alternative universe. I really like that. Um, which, again, is totally in line with the original Star Trek. I mean, Captain Kirk and Spock, they go to an alternative universe. And Spock, I think, is the one who has a goatee. So, in the, uh, so in order to make him evil in mm-hmm. in nineteen sixty six, in uh, you know, in their world, uh, they was like, well, if we want to make Spock evil, you got to give him a goatee. And 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 so, uh, yeah, there, anyone who's like, this isn't following, you know, this, it's like, dudes, have you? watched the original series it's goofy it has some very goofy moments in it so uh so yeah so have you watched the second season yet or not i've watched maybe the first couple episodes of- okay because so then that you know that they loop in the whole pike storyline which is the right. original pilot which i i am not that geeky although i'm sure i'd seen that episode at some point and just was like a child and was like what's going on i don't know more space stuff blue people um but i've been very fascinated to kind of get into that deeper lore and figure out what's going on there but we got to adjourn so it was great catching up with you rebecca it's been a long time let's let's try not to uh, let it go as as long next time uh crazy ex-girlfriends that's our next one okay i guess i guess i need to watch that too oh Oh, i'm so excited plus it's a musical (laughs) All right. Well, that does it for that episode of Psychology of Seattle. Thanks for joining us uh, on this journey into the stars. And please take care of yourself. And why should they do that, Rebecca? So you can live long and prosper. <laughs>